I'd like to invite you to take a copy of the scriptures and turn to the Gospel of John, the eighth chapter. We began to see Jesus last week uh, engage again with the same crowd that he was talking with in John 7. So this is during the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And in, at the beginning of chapter 7, he stood in the midst of the crowd in the temple on the last day, the great day, they called it, of the feast, and proclaimed, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For as the scripture says, whoever believes out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so Jesus, in the midst of these Ceremonies where the priests were getting water from a spring and pouring it onto the altar in the temple as a way of picturing the provision and the salvation of God and their trust in Him. Jesus stood and said, If you're really thirsty, if you really want to drink, I'm the source of living water. And in effect, all of these rituals that you have been performing for these hundreds of years by the command of God are fulfilled in me. And so He presents Himself as Uh, Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the world. And that begins this back and forth dialogue, an argument really, where some people say, we're interested. We think this guy uh, has some good things to say. And others say, I don't think he could possibly be who he says he is. And then you've got the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders who are opposed to him and want to kill him. And in fact, their anger toward him and their Uh, determination to put him to death will only increase throughout uh, the chapter that we're in now. If you were to read John chapter or uh, John chapter 7 at the beginning where he goes up to the Feast of Booths all the way through to the end of chapter 8, if you were to read that in one sitting, you would just see this escalation. Things are getting more tense and uh, more Uh, argumentative and belligerent and the crowd uh, more divided about Jesus and the Pharisees and religious leaders more determined than ever that he must die. And in fact, it ends, chapter 8 will end with an actual attempt to stone him to death on the spot. Of course, we know that's not going to happen because as John tells us over and over, his hour had not yet come. So we've, we drop today into the middle of this back and forth dialogue where the tensions are rising, the clouds are gathering, it's getting more difficult and the attitudes about Jesus, the opposition to Jesus are getting more and more intense as this conversation goes on. The verses we're going to cover today are a pretty small piece in terms of that flow, so we won't really get a sense of that drama unfolding as in the verses that we're going to look at today, because I want to slow down and dig into the, the, the truths and the precious promises that Jesus offers through these few verses in the middle of the chapter. So we're going to sort of be aware of the drama that's happening and the context of these verses, but for today, we're going to slow down We're going to zoom in a little bit and just spend some time on these few words of Jesus in chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. So if you have a copy of the scripture in front of you, just follow along with me as I read for you verses 31 through 36 of John chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly 
my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is God's word. So John told us in verse 30 that as this dialogue is unfolding and this argument argument is going back and forth between Jesus and the, the Pharisees, he told us in verse 30 that as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So there is at least apparent faith on the part of some from this audience, those in the temple who are hearing and participating in this dialogue with Jesus. Some of them apparently have believed. And so Jesus turns his attention to that group of people in these verses, as it says in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. So He had been talking more or less to the Pharisees and the religious leaders who have been the most vocal in this group with their opposition. But he now becomes aware that there are some in the crowd who have at least apparently believed in him. And so Jesus is going to turn his attention to them. And in his address to these people, we find one of the kind of unsettling facts of spiritual life and the reality of the church in this day and time, and that is this. There are real disciples and phony disciples. It's possible to be a fake disciple of Jesus, and I know that because he's talking to these people who apparently believed, and he makes this distinction with a condition. He said the distinction is this. You are truly my disciples, or really my disciples. The condition is, if you abide in my word. We'll talk about what that phrase means in a minute, but there's a distinction and a condition. If you meet the condition of abiding in my word, then you have the distinction of being a true disciple, which implies that it is possible to not be a true disciple. To be a disciple of Jesus, perhaps on the surface, but we're really hiding the truth in our hearts and maybe even know that we're not disciples and we're just sort of playing the church game, just playing the following Jesus game. Or maybe, even more scary perhaps, we may be deceived into believing that we're disciples of Jesus, but in fact, don't meet the condition that he sets out, that we are abiding in his word. J. Vernon McGee said that there are believers and unbelievers and make-believers. And I think that this category of of make-believer, of phony disciple, of not true disciple is one that we ought to give special attention to. We need to be careful that we're aware of this reality. 
And I think we should examine ourselves. We should look at our own heart and our own life for evidence of the work of God in our hearts and in our lives. And we have to ask ourselves this question. If the condition is abiding in the word of Christ, again, we'll talk about that, we should ask ourselves, am I abiding in Christ's word? Am I abiding in the word of Christ? Am I truly a disciple or am I just pretending? Or am I maybe self-deceived into thinking I'm a disciple, but really I'm not? So that's the first thing to point out is just in the way that Jesus makes this statement, there is the implication that you might not be real disciples. And I think he's putting his finger a bit on the pulse of the apparent belief of these Jews who John told us in verse 30 had believed in him. And we're going to see that as they begin to respond uh, and to argue back with Jesus on this point, we're going to see that perhaps these aren't really true disciples after all. We'll come to that conclusion very shortly. So, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And so we start with the the realization or the acknowledgement that it's possible to be a phony disciple of Jesus and hopefully a desire that sparks in our hearts to avoid that pitfall and to be sure that we truly are his disciples. So abiding in the word of Jesus is the condition or or the test, if you will, of true discipleship. So let's talk about what that means. What is this test of discipleship? Abide in my words. Well, first of all, the word abide really just means to remain, to continue, to not drift from. So when he says, if you abide in my word, he's saying, if you continue in my word, if you remain in my word. So let's talk about what his word is. Broadly speaking, Jesus' teaching. So when he says, abide in my word, word there is, could be kind of a summary of all of Jesus' teachings, all of his message, all that he has been preaching and speaking about from the beginning of his ministry. More specifically, the, the message is that of his life laid down for sinners, of new and eternal life available to everyone who turns from his sin and trusts in Jesus as Savior. Because he's been preaching the kingdom of God. He's been preaching about and predicting his life laid down and taken up again. He told them back in the, in the temple in John chapter 2 that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Of course, they thought, that's ridiculous. How could you rebuild this temple? It's taken us 45 years to build it. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about his body being destroyed in death and then raised up again to new life. And so Jesus has been speaking of, even in kind of veiled terms, his death and resurrection, which would come. And then the apostles that we read uh, throughout the rest of the New Testament sort of look back on the teaching of Jesus, and they interpret the message of Christ as Jesus the Messiah, crucified for sinners, raised to new life and inviting his people to join him in faith. So, if you continue in, abide in my word. In other words, a true disciple is someone who continues believing the gospel and continues following Christ in obedience. 
So there is an ongoing belief in Jesus as the Savior, Jesus as the only way to a relationship with God. And coupled with that, an ongoing submission of life and heart to him. An ongoing impulse and desire to obey and to follow in his teachings. He said in, uh, earlier in this chapter in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Who gets the light of life? Whoever follows Jesus. And following Jesus entails what you believe and how you live. It entails recognizing Jesus as the only Savior and yielding to Jesus as the Lord, as the Master, as our new boss, if you will. And so he tells these apparent disciples, perhaps phony disciples, if you continue believing my message, the message that I am your Savior and I am the Lord, then you are truly my disciples. So that's the condition that Jesus lays out. If you're going to be a true disciple, it's going to be because you are abiding in my word. So that raises the question, why is that so important? Why is abiding in the word of Jesus so essential? Why are the teachings of Jesus and the message of his inspired word to us so essential to the Christian life? That Jesus says, essentially, it's what proves you're truly mine. And he tells us, he answers that question for us in the very next statement. You, look at verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Two parts of that promise. The first is you will know the truth. Now, this Jewish audience didn't like what Jesus had to say. They're going to argue with him because saying that they would be set free implies that they're in bondage. And they don't like that idea, so they challenge him. Look at verse 33. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, of course, on the surface, just looking at the history of the nation of Israel and the people of Israel, it's plainly apparent that Israel spent much of its history in bondage in actual political bondage to other peoples. In fact, as a nation, Israel was born in slavery in Egypt and spent 400 years there. And then they spent much of the Old Testament history, if you can read about in the Old Testament, in, slave, in, in bondage to Persia and Babylon and the Syrians. They were constantly oppressed by other people. And even as the Jewish audience responds with these words, we've never been enslaved to anyone, they are currently under Roman occupation. They're not even a free nation at this point when they say this. So there's a certain kind of blindness, I think, to their own reality. But I think they're also looking a little bit beneath the surface here. And, and I think they, they're tracking with Jesus enough to know he's talking about something deeper than political, you know, geographical, earthly kinds of captivity. He's talking about something that has to do with the heart. 
And so when they say we're children of Abraham, they are pointing to their ethnic and religious heritage. Because Abraham, he was like the granddaddy in the Old Testament, right? He is the granddaddy of the nation of Israel. Abraham is this random dude that God picked out and said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And through you, I'm going to bless the whole world, every nation of the world. And it would be through Abraham's children that the nation of Israel would descend. And so when they call themselves children of Abraham or offspring of Abraham, they're saying, we're special. We're God's people. God made this promise to Abraham, and then we came from his lineage, and we are the chosen people of God. And so they say, we've got kind of a special status here. We've never been enslaved. Like, we're, God and us are tight. We're good, all right? So how is it that you could possibly say that we are enslaved? And so we see a universal human instinct to justify ourselves. Perhaps you're not unfamiliar with this instinct to self-justification. We're not enslaved. We're just fine. We're doing okay, right? Jesus drops a truth bomb in response to that where he says, truly, I say to you, for real, for real, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. With this statement, Jesus disarms not only his Jewish audience of that day, but you and me as well. We are all chronic self-justifiers, quick to point out the shortcomings and sins of others while turning a blind eye to our own. That is our instinct. That is our nature. It's much more comfortable for us to blame it on someone else or to see someone else's fault and by comparison, make ourselves feel a little better, make ourselves feel perhaps even a little bit superior to other people. Here's the deal. Jesus wants to set us free. But before he can set us free, there's some stuff we've got to learn, right? He says, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So the truth that you know is what is going to set you free. So there's some things we've got to learn. There's some truth we have to know before Jesus can set us free, right? So here is some truth for you. First, you are a slave. Verse 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It is in our very nature. We are fallen people. Ever since Adam and Eve ate that fruit in the garden and disobeyed God's command, it plunged all of humanity into a state of brokenness. And in our broken state, we are inclined toward sin. From the earliest time we are able to make a moral decision, we sin. We choose evil. We choose ourself and our own glory, and we reject God, and we are enslaved to sin. Listen to Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. 
They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there is any who understand, who seek after God. Here's his conclusion. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. You are a slave to sin. Apart from God intervening and doing something in your life and in your heart, you are enslaved to sin. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, a very well-known passage. In Romans chapter 6, he says, beginning down in verse 20, excuse me, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, meaning righteousness was not on your mind. You were not concerned about righteousness because you were a slave to sin. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. And he tells us down in verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. You're a slave to sin. Sin is your work, right? As a slave to sin, with sin as our master, the work that we do is sin. And the paycheck that we get for our sin is death. That is what we have earned by our corruption, by our sin, by our slavery to sin. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. And there's no one that escapes that pronouncement. This is the universal truth about all human beings born after Adam and Eve, after the fall. We're sinners. We're enslaved. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's who we are unless God does something. We're slaves to sin. And you have to know it before you can be set free from it. If you don't think you're a slave to sin, there's no way you can be freed from it. Just like Paul said, you, when you were a slave to sin, you were free regarding righteousness. In other words, I don't care. I don't care about righteousness. I don't care about following Jesus. I don't need that stuff because I'm fine, right? Sometimes it's easier to convince people, excuse me, sometimes it's harder to convince people that they're lost than it is to convince a lost person that he ought to trust in Jesus to be saved. If you find someone and you speak with somebody who knows that they're broken and knows that they're a sinner and knows that they need help, oh man, they are ready to hear about Jesus. They are ready to hear that there's a path for them to get back to God and to be forgiven and reconciled to him. But try to talk to somebody who thinks they're hunky-dory, everything's fine, I got no problems, my life's pretty good, I think God is, is happy with me just because my life is peachy. It's pretty hard to tell that person, actually, you're a slave and you don't even know it. You've got to convince people sometimes. You are enslaved and you are blind to your own slavery. So truth number one, you're a slave, period. You're a slave to sin. Truth number two, your self-justifications won't convince Jesus. Just like the people here saying, wait a minute, but we're children of Abraham. I mean, we're, we're okay. We're, God and us are like this. We're, we're close. Jesus doesn't buy it. He's like, but you practice sin, right? Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. 
doesn't, doesn't change his mind. Your self-justifications won't convince Jesus. But, but my dad was a pastor. Doesn't matter. But, but I went to church all the time as a kid. I was even baptized as an infant. So what? But, but I'm a super nice guy, and people really like me. Congratulations. But I don't do any of the really bad stuff. I mean, sure, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But I'm not doing that really bad list of sins, right? So surely I'm okay. Want to bet? Jesus says if you have anger in your heart toward your brother, you're guilty of murder. So are you sure you're not doing any of the really bad sins? But I go to church all the time. Not the point. Our self-justifications don't get us anywhere with Jesus. They don't carry any water. Because he sees straight to our hearts. He sees the darkness that lives there. He sees the slavery, the bondage that we live under. So any excuses that we offer, any way we spin it to try to make ourselves look a little better, Jesus doesn't buy it. It doesn't work. That won't get us anywhere with Jesus. So we've got to be honest with ourselves and recognize our slavery. Truth number three. You can't save yourself. You can't do it. You can't save yourself. You're enslaved to sin, and there's no way for you to get yourself free from sin. Unless God does something for you, that's where you live and that's where you'll die, as a slave to sin. Adam and Eve tried it. After they sinned and they knew that what they did was wrong, they recognized they were naked, and they tried to cover themselves up with some fig leaves, sewed themselves little underwear out of fig leaves to cover up their nakedness. It didn't work. Did it fool God? God came looking for him. Uh, where you at? What'd you do? He knew. It doesn't fool God, and it didn't help him. I remember reading, uh, in, in college, I remember reading Ben Franklin's autobiography, And there's a portion in there where he talks about his attempts to perfect himself by, basically he creates a chart with 13 virtues, things like temperance and humility and justice and sincerity and industry, right? So he makes this list of 13 virtues, and he makes himself a chart for each day of the week, and then he he gives himself a certain amount of time with one particular virtue. So he'll say, for example... For this week, I'm only going to focus on temperance, which is like moderation, like not eating too much, not saying too much, just making rational, reasonable decisions, right? So I'm going to focus on this one virtue for this week. And if I mess up in all the others, I don't care. I'm going to spend one week on this virtue. And so he'd say, I get to the end of the week and I go, all right, I think I've mastered that virtue. So let's add a second one. And so the next week is going to focus on, say, humility. And so he's going to spend the week focusing on humility. But of course, what he found was when he started to feel like, hey, I'm getting this down, suddenly I'm not doing so great with humility because now I'm actually kind of boasting about how well I'm doing with it. So actually, I'm not doing so great in humility. And so he would focus on the next one and then find out that, oh, actually, I'm not doing very good in temperance anymore. And so like, I need to refocus on that. And the longer this went on, trying to get 13 virtues all mastered at the same time, he couldn't do it. He found it was impossible to perfect his virtuous character, no matter how detailed or meticulous or 
strategic his approach was. I can't perfect myself. I can't make myself live in these certain virtuous ways. And in fact, Ben could have saved himself a good bit of time if he had heard this very sermon. You're a slave to sin, Ben. You can't perfect yourself. You can't get yourself out of the muck of slavery to sin and the corruption and the darkness that lives in your heart on your own. You can't do it. Charles Spurgeon said, a hog in a silk waistcoat is still a hog. It doesn't matter how much you dress it up. It doesn't change who it is. So it doesn't matter how much your life on the outside looks like everything's together and we're doing just fine. I got my wife. I got my 2.5 kids. I got my nice house, my nice car. I give a little bit of charitable, you know, a little money to charitable donation organizations. I go to church every now and then. You know, I got my kids in school. I'm involved in the PTA. Like, we're all happy and nice and our lives look good. But if you're a slave to sin, none of that changes who you are. None of that matters. None of that can possibly save you. You're a slave. Your self-justifications won't convince Jesus, and you can't save yourselves. You got to know the truth. If he's going to set us free, there's some stuff we've got to know. Well, are you ready for some good news? Because this is all pretty bad news so far, that you're a slave and you can't save yourself and that Jesus doesn't care about your self-justifications. Oh, come on, what else do I have? Well, the good news is the next part of this phrase. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. So here's some more truth for you. Since you couldn't measure up, Jesus fulfilled God's law on your behalf. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In other words, he didn't come and just go, hey, never mind with that whole following God and obeying the law stuff. What he did was, I am going to obey it. I'm going to carry it out. I'm going to obey God perfectly for you. I'm going to follow the law and fulfill the law in your place. Since you can't do it, I'll do it for you. So Jesus comes as God and man, thus a representative for human beings and able to live perfectly and sinlessly and obediently. And he fulfills the law of God on your behalf. The book of Hebrews tells us that in ushering in a new covenant, he set the old one aside. He completed it, he fulfilled it, he lived it, and he set it aside. The new covenant is believe. Abide in my word. That's it. Believe, repent, trust me, follow me. Here's some more truth. Since your sin deserved death and judgment from God, Jesus took that punishment in your place. Galatians 3.13 tells us, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Jesus hangs on a tree and becomes a curse in our place so that we don't have to bear the curse anymore. The curse of measure up or die. We don't bear that anymore because Jesus measured up for us and Jesus died for us. So both of those things are taken out of the way. You're set free. You're set free from this 
bondage. Here's another truth. Since Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was acceptable to God as a payment for your sins, he was raised from the dead to render death and the devil defeated. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 says, Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Death has been swallowed up in victory. Even death has no claim on the follower of Jesus. Death has no sting. It has no teeth for the person who's trusting in Jesus and been set free from that law by simply believing that Jesus is the Savior. Some more good news. All of the work that Jesus accomplished in his life, his death, his resurrection, will be applied to your account when you admit your own slavery to sin. I can't do anything. I am helpless. Please help me. Admit your slavery to sin. Believe in Jesus as the only Savior. He is who he says he is. He came to do what he says he came to do, and only he could do it. And confess him as Lord of your life. That is, put him in charge. Name him the boss. If you admit your slavery to sin, believe in Jesus as the only Savior, and confess him as Lord, everything that Jesus accomplished by fulfilling the law, by taking the penalty for sin, and by defeating death, all of that is yours. All of that is applied to the sinner who trusts Christ. It's all his. That's freedom. That's what real freedom is. Freedom not to be stuck in bondage, not to be trapped in sin with no other choice, with no other option, with no power. This is the word of Christ. When he says, abide in my word, I think this is what he means. Abide in the truth that I have come to live and die and rise in your place and to give you new life by faith, eternal life. This is the word of Christ. This is the gospel. This is the good news that Christians believe and that we live in light of and that we proclaim to others. Why is abiding in his word so important? Why is this message, this truth, and believing it and, and, and owning it and, and getting it planted deeper down into our hearts, why is it so important? I've heard some people talk about the Christian life like that story about Jesus dying for us and rising, and you know, that's just kind of the starting point. You believe that, that gets you into the door, into the family of God, and then you can graduate onto the really like deep things and look at more serious matters of, of the faith. That's not how the New Testament talked. That's not how Jesus talked about it. Jesus said, remain in this, abide in this, continue in this, stay in this. Paul says, this is the very power of God. Look at Romans 1.16. The book of Romans, which is a huge and weighty and beautiful explanation of this good news and applying of this good news in kind of the introductory statement about this letter, Paul says this in Romans 1, 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
to the Jew first, also to the Greek or the Gentile, which is anyone who's not a Jew. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What's the gospel? The word of Christ, the message of Jesus living for sinners, dying for sinners, rising for sinners, and inviting sinners into his family by faith. That's the gospel that Paul's talking about. And he says, it's the gospel, it's this good news that is the power of God for salvation. It's not a self-help book. It's not a list of virtues that you kind of map out and try to hammer your way through until you can perfect the virtues. That's not the power of God to salvation. That's slavery. That's bondage. The power of God to salvation is the story of Jesus living and dying and rising for sinners and offering new life. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 20, this is Paul again. He says, excuse me, that's the wrong chapter. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 20. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness. To those who don't get it, to those who are not saved, to those who are not in Christ, the message of a crucified Messiah is stupid. It's nonsense to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Down toward the end of the chapter, verse 28, he says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. To those who are perishing, to those who are outside the family of God, outside the faith, the message of Jesus crucified for sinners is utter nonsense. It doesn't make sense. But to those who are being saved, the ones in whom God is working, the ones whom God is calling and drawing and opening hearts and removing blinders from their eyes, to those of us who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. Just what he said in Romans 1.16, the gospel, the power of God for salvation. So why abide in his word? What's so important about his message, his truth, his life for ours? It's the only way to get set free. It's the only way to be released from the bondage to sin. It's been said that our freedom from sin kind of comes in three stages, if you will. Where when we first trust in Christ, that first time where we admit our sin and our slavery to sin and, and recognize Jesus as the Savior and we place our faith in him, God frees us from the penalty of sin. We no longer have to pay for our sins because Jesus paid for it. And so his payment is applied to us. And so we're freed from the penalty of sin. And then as we 
live our lives in faith and as we follow God and abide in his word and learn more about who he is and what he's called us to and we seek the help and, uh, and strength and encouragement of, of, our, of our Christian family and our church, we're freed from the, the power of sin. So increasingly, more and more, the, the, the strength, the hold that sin has on us starts to, to weaken. And we won't find ourselves sinless but we do hope to find ourselves sinning less, right? We grow in holiness as we follow Christ, as we abide in his word. And so gradually we're freed from the power of sin. We've been freed from its penalty. We're being freed from its power. And then one day in future glory, when Jesus returns and brings his people home and ushers in his final kingdom, we will be freed from the very presence of sin. It won't even be a thought. It won't even be a reality. I can hardly even envision a world with no sin. It's fun to think about. No sin, no brokenness, no relationships torn apart, no marriages ending in divorce, no children abused or enslaved, no wars, no famine, no hunger, nobody goes without. And all the stuff that's in my own heart, all the darkness and the bitterness and the anger and the judgment and the self-gratification that hangs out in my heart, gone. Not a reality anymore. Pure love, pure joy, pure worship of Jesus Christ forever. This is freedom. This is the freedom that Jesus came to give. And Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. A slave is not part of the family. So he says a slave, slave does not remain in the house forever, right? But a son always remains. And whatever belongs to the family belongs to the son. He is a permanent heir to the rights and possessions of his family. So, verse 36, if the son, capital S, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Free indeed. May each of us find this freedom. Long for this freedom. Pursue this freedom, not by charting out virtues and trying to make our way through toward perfection in virtue, not by self-justifications and pointing to all the various things that make ourselves feel better about who we are, about how our lives are going, but simply by leaning on Jesus and going, it's not me, it's him. I have nothing offer. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I'll close with these words from Charles Wesley in his great hymn, And Can It Be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose went forth and followed thee.